Hi, Texas Wine Podcast. This is Shelley Wilfong, your host. Today I'm releasing an abbreviated episode that doesn't have all the bells and whistles that a full episode would have. Today's episode is an interview with Michael Hardy, author of a TexasMonthly.com article on the use of dicamba in the Texas High Plains. If you haven't already read his article, you might want to start there on TexasMonthly.com. The easiest way to find it is to search using the author's name, Michael Hardy. This is obviously a complex issue with a wide range of opinions, interpretations, accusations, and the like. There's a lot going on here, including ongoing legal proceedings. The fact is, every Texas wine person I've talked to over the past few years has had great concerns about dicamba, at least privately. It's not fun to talk about, and there's just not a great solution. As for me, I hope that the product is taken off the market and soon. I also hope that the Texas wine industry can move beyond this issue quickly. There's so much great wine still to be made, and so many people who still don't even know about Texas wine. All this talk of the end times, it makes me uncomfortable. I'll continue to keep podcast listeners updated on any breaking news from the EPA, updates on the lawsuit, or on additional articles on this topic. Now here's Michael Hardy. My name is Michael Hardy. I'm a writer-at-large at Texas Monthly. And what is your usual beat? I am a generalist. I write about a little bit of everything. So I've written about politics, business, culture, and this is my first story on the wine industry. But I learned a lot while reporting the story. I bet. And you live in Houston, so are you a native Texan? I am a native Texan. I grew up in Austin, and I've been living in Houston for the past 10 years. Okay. Did you have much interest in the Texas wine industry before you started this story? You know, the first time I really took Texas wine seriously was I was at a steakhouse in Houston, and the waiter recommended a glass of red uh, that was came from a winery outside of Lubbock. And I don't remember the name of the winery, but I was skeptical because my past experiences of Texas wine had been somewhat disappointing. But he insisted that this was serious, that Texas wine had improved greatly. So I, I ordered the wine and it was delicious. I was surprised how good it was. And at that time, I did not even know that wine was made in the high plains. I certainly didn't know that 70 to 80% of all the grapes in Texas wine were grown in the high plains. Yeah. A lot of people are surprised if they haven't tasted Texas wine in a long time. When they come back around to it, they're surprised at, at um, the strides that the industry has made in the past decade or so. So how did this story get on your radar screen? Um, how did this story come to be? The attorneys for this group of grape growers and winery owners had approached my editor at Texas Monthly to see if she was interested in a story about this. And she uh, passed it on to me. So I can't take credit for coming up with the idea. But as soon as I learned about it, I had a feeling this was going to be a big story because Texans like products that are made in state. We, we like our Texas uh, you know, produce, we like our Texas beef, and uh, Texas wine is becoming a bigger and bigger deal. I've been to Fredericksburg, I know what it looks like down there. So if the threat to the wine industry from this new herbicide was as bad as 
the attorneys made it out to be, I, I knew that uh, this was a serious problem. And how did you decide where to begin in your research? Well, the first thing I did was uh, flew up to Lubbock, and I spent a couple days touring vineyards uh, and seeing the dicamba damage for myself. Uh, the I, I spoke to five vineyard owners who were kind enough to invite me onto their property, give me tours, open up about what they've been through, and show me the the cupping and the deformations that are caused by this herbicide. So it was really uh, an eye-opener, to say the least. To And then, you know, to see the burn piles of dead vines that they had had to cut out and burn because they had completely died was remarkable. I'm sure you heard from a lot of growers about the the severe weather that they've had. I guess it's hard to tell what is a, you know, the result of the weather and what is a result of the dicamba damage. Um, I've seen, I saw both mentioned in, in your article. Well, the contention of BASF and Bayer, which are the companies that co-developed the new variety of dicamba, is that the damage that I saw and that farmers have been seeing is the result of freezes and hail. The farmers I spoke to just laughed at that. Uh, you know, many of them have been farming for a decade or more. They know what hail damage and freeze damage looks like, and they've been able to adapt to that. They have hail netting. They have wind machines that prevent temperature inversions uh, and, and prevent frost from setting on leaves. So, you know, the one freeze in particular that was mentioned in BASF and Bayer's statements to Texas Monthly was a 2019 freeze. And they said, yes, that that freeze was bad, but they had been noticing the damage since 2017. And they actually believe that one of the reasons the 2019 freeze was so impactful was because many other vines had already been weakened by years of exposure to dicamba. You know, all I can say, I'm, I'm not an agricultural expert, but the damage I saw on the leaves, the cupping, is just textbook dicamba based on, I, I spoke to weed scientists, I spoke to agronomists. It's not, it doesn't look like hail damage or freeze damage to me. It, it fits all the classic signs of dicamba damage, which is well known. Dicamba's been in use since the 1960s. Everybody knows what it does. So there are what, 57, 56 or 57 growers out on the High Plains that have joined this, this suit. And I, I imagine you spoke to a lot of them. There are others that haven't. Do you have a sense for why they didn't? I spoke to one guide, Jim, Paul, Paul Bonariga. I apologize. Paul Bonariga of Miss Enohoff. And he had not joined the lawsuit, but he was supportive of the lawsuit's claims. He uh, told me that Miss Enohoff had had to close down and sell two of its High Plains vineyards for precisely this reason, uh, dicamba damage. So even though he hadn't joined the lawsuit and he didn't explain why he, had, he, why he didn't join it, he fully agreed with the lawsuit's claims. It sounds to me like it's just a matter of, do we want to go through this protracted legal process and all the 
headaches and, and expense it, it could potentially produce for us. I noticed that that passage when you mentioned that they had some damaged um, vineyards and had sold them. And I thought, well, somebody bought them, I presume. So I guess someone feels like there's a chance for, um, you know, things to, to move in the right direction, unless they're planning to plant cotton there. I don't know. I don't know. Someone posted an online version of your article and said that the Department of Agriculture and specifically the commissioner, Sid Miller, need to do more around this issue. Was that a sentiment that you heard repeated in your interviews? Yes. The, the farmers have absolutely no faith in Sid Miller. Only a few of them had even tried to reach out to his office. And when they did, what I was told is the Department of Agriculture actually investigated them for potentially causing the damage to their own crops. So let's a grape grower files a complaint with the TDA. The TDA sends somebody out there. And the first thing the TDA man does is ask the vineyard owner to open up their books to see what herbicides they're using. So the farmers felt that by complaining, they were actually painting a target on their own backs. Their feeling is that Sid Miller, the agricultural uh, secretary of agriculture, is all in on cotton. And cotton is a much, much bigger crop. It has more political clout in Austin. And the grape growers are a relatively new industry in the high plains and just don't have the political clout that cotton does. So they, they, they've stopped even asking Sid Miller to do anything. I was comparing the statistics on the industries and although cotton is the number one cotton producing state. What I meant to say here is that Texas is the number one cotton producing state in the nation, the size of the industry is about $24 billion annually as far as the total economic footprint. And the Texas wine industry is about $13.1 billion. And those numbers are a little older, I think 17 and 18. Um, so it's probably bigger now, but roughly cotton is twice as big as wine. But it seems like, like you said, the clout is significantly more. Yeah, I think in part that's because cotton is just better established. Cotton has been the number one row crop in Texas since before the Civil War. Cotton farmers are established, they're entrenched, they're, they know how to protect their interests. Vineyard owners are relatively new to this. They simply haven't developed the networks and the patronage that would be required to get action from the TDA. I also thought it was interesting that cotton is about a 5 million acre a year crop. So 5 million acres of cotton. And there are, there are only about 6,000 acres of grapevines in the entire state. So <laughs> that's significantly different. And I've also heard that cotton takes more water to grow. So just interesting comparing the industries. So as I was thinking about what could happen here to resolve this issue with dicamba, you brought up the attorneys and I'd love to know what the attorneys think might happen. Um, I guess the grape farmers could settle, but then the product is still on the market. It could go to court, and that's always a wild card. Um, one state in particular has imposed some additional restrictions on dicamba use. I believe Arkansas did that. That does not seem likely in Texas for the reasons we've already stated. 
or the EPA could remove this product from the market. And I'd love for you to talk about how this ended up um, green-lighted by the EPA and kind of some of the changes around um, how the EPA is viewing dicamba, if you can. Sure. Well, as I mentioned earlier, dicamba has been around since the 1960s. It's been in use since the 1960s by farmers. But until 2016, it could only be used in the winter before the growing season for a what they call a burn down of weeds. So before the planting season, you want to burn down, kill all the existing weeds on your land. In 2016, BASF and Bayer were able to convince the EPA that they had created a new formulation of dicamba that was less likely to volatilize upon contact with crops. And this new formulation won, new formulation won EPA approval for use virtually year-round. So instead of only spraying it on their crops in the winter, cotton and soybean farmers and other row crop farmers started spraying dicamba during the middle of the growing season. And 2017, the year after this was approved by the EPA, is the first year that the vineyard owners told me they started noticing widespread damage. It was, uh, dicamba was almost immediately adopted by a large and growing number of cotton growers, and it was adopted by soybean growers across the country as well. I saw um, your article linked to something that the EPA put out fairly recently. Uh, you said that there's some evidence that under the Biden administration that the EPA is taking the threat of dicamba more seriously, and that last year a senior EPA official acknowledged that during the Trump presidency, polit political interference sometimes compromised the integrity of our science. It sounds to me like this product does not um, meet today's strict scientific standards for approval. That isn't quite what the EPA said. What the EPA said was the process that led to Dicamba's registration did not necessarily meet the standards. But it's unclear whether that, that means the EPA is prepared to revoke the registration for Dicamba and take it off the market. Uh, I, my understanding is that the issue is currently under review at the EPA. Uh, the specific incident cited in that memo under the Biden administration EPA is the fact that dicamba was actually taken off the market by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in 2018, I believe. Uh, the Ninth Circuit wrote this scathing opinion saying the EPA had basically fallen down on the job and approved dicamba without giving it due consideration and without relying on scientific evidence. And the Ninth Circuit opinion forced the Trump EPA to take it off the market for about three months. And then almost immediately, uh, the EPA re-approved it with a stricter set of label instructions. So it's claiming that, oh, we met the Ninth Circuit's requirements. Now we're being tougher and we're requiring uh, stricter instructions for how dicamba can be used, and we just reissued it. Now, the EPA is being sued again over this. Do you get a sense for what the great farmers that are part of this lawsuit want to happen with the product? Do they want it taken off the they market? They want it taken off the market. 
they are only suing because they've tried every other avenue and have not been able to get any. They couldn't get any action from the TDA. They couldn't get any action from the EPA. They couldn't convince their cotton farming neighbors to stop using it. So they felt like all they could do was sue Bayer and BASF to get it, to get, to get uh, economic compensation for the damage they've suffered. Now, to be clear, even if they win this lawsuit, Dicamba will still be on the market. Uh, BASF and Bayer settled a similar lawsuit from America's soybean growers uh, a couple of years, I think it was last year, for about $300 million. Uh, any soybean farmer whose soybeans were damaged is eligible for a payout, but BASF and Bayer get to keep Dicamba on the market. And presumably, this will continue to happen. There's no reason for them to take it off the market. It's, from all indications, it's wildly profitable and successful. It's been adopted by about two-thirds of all cotton growers in Texas. And similar take-up rates, as I understand it, among soybean growers across the country. Do you have a sense for if this is going to go to trial or if you think the farmers will settle? I think it's likely to settle simply because Bayer and BASF don't want the publicity that would come from a a trial on this. Uh, And that has been Bayer and BASF's practice in the past is to settle these cases. That's what they did with the soybean growers. I, I would assume the farmers you know, would, would accept that. I, I don't know what they're, I don't have insight into their legal strategy here. I know that it's been very disruptive in the industry and on texasmonthly.com, one person commented in, in her comment, there was a lot of uh, animosity toward these white collar farmers who are new to farming. Although in fact, many of them are previous farmers for other crops, but Nevertheless, um, she considered these white-collar farmers. Do you get the sense that that is the feeling about grape growers out there? Did you hear any of that? I could not get any cotton growers to talk to me at all, and I tried. I I reached out to every trade association that I could, asking them to put me in touch with cotton farmers. None of them came through. The only representative of the cotton growers I talked to was a guy named Cody Besant at the... uh, Texas uh, High Plains Cotton Growers Association, who is a, essentially, it's a lobbying group for the cotton growers. And he flatly denied that dicamba had anything to do with the damage I had seen. He claims he hasn't seen any evidence that dicamba is causing this other than news reports, which he essentially characterizes as fake news. So the attitude, at least of that one lobbying group, is that the vineyard owners are making this up. And why would they do that? To get money that from this lawsuit. That is essentially what BASF and Bayer uh, suggested to me in their statements. They, they noted that the vineyard owners in Texas had only sued after the $300 million soybean settlement, suggesting that this is simply a cash grab. Uh, they're trying to get money from these very wealthy German conglomerates. 
tell me about the title of your article. Is that something that you, you picked or that someone write for you like they do in the newspapers? It's called The Texas Wine Industry is Just Getting Started. Grape Farmers Say the End is Near. I did not write the headline, but I think it accurately reflects the substance of my story, which is that the Texas wine industry is taking off like a rocket. Anyone who's been to Fredericksburg can see that or anyone who's paying attention, as your listeners surely do, can see that. But if this is, in, if Dicamba does pose a mortal threat to High Plains vineyards, then the industry is in real trouble. That's 70 to 80% of all wine grapes in Texas uh, that are grown there. If, I mean, the, the farmers I talked to said they, they thought they could only hold out another few years before they'd have to go out of business entirely. And that means that grape growing would have to shift to the hill country where land is much more expensive or far west Texas, and which would greatly increase the shipping costs to get the grapes to the wineries. And the other option is that Texas winemakers go back to importing a lot of California grapes to pad out their wine. I mean, it, it used to be that you could only put a percentage of Texas grown grapes in your wine uh, and call it Texas wine as long as there was, you know, some amount. I'm not, I'm not sure what the exact, exact standard is now. Part of the revolution in Texas wine making that I talk about in my article is that there's been a movement to make Texas wine made from 100% Texas grown grapes. This is something that Chris Brundrett at William Chris Vineyards and uh, Andy Timmons at Lost Straw Cellars, they have been pushing this 100% Texas grown grapes trying to capture the terroir of these regions, these AVA regions like the High Plains, that is going to be lost. There, are, there aren't going to be any High Plains AVA wines if Dicamba continues to devastate the vineyards up there. It's interesting because I see in the industry there's so much growth of tasting rooms, of new wineries, and of vineyards going in, even in the High Plains. And so to call it a, a mortal threat. I mean, it's definitely a threat. I don't think anybody would disagree with that, that there is damage. And like some have said, there's not a vineyard there that doesn't have at least some evidence that dicamba has spread. Um, is it a mortal threat? I guess that's, that's the question. They think it is. And Andy, Andy Timmons, um, these other guys that I talked to, they said they're going to be out of business in a matter of years. No. Are they exaggerating that for effect for the sake of the lawsuit? I don't know. Uh, but that was the common refrain. And I heard the same thing from Chris Brundrett. I mean, Chris Brundrett said he cannot make as much of his most popular bottles, his most popular blends, because he cannot get enough grapes from the High Plains. And it has gotten steadily worse every year. What kind of feedback have you gotten on your article? I've had a number of people, including from the Lubbock area and from the Dallas area, saying they did not know about this, that they didn't know this was happening, which is somewhat surprising. Uh, and I've also gotten a lot of feedback from people who had no idea that we even grew grapes in the High Plains. Everyone associates the Texas wine industry with Fredericksburg. Everybody goes there, you know, you go for a bachelorette weekend or you go for a, you know, a couple's weekend and you see these beautiful wineries and tasting rooms and they have these you know picturesque vineyards in front and people think that's where the grapes are grown when in fact 
as I understand it, most of those vineyards are there mostly for kind of an effect. They're, you know, you can sort of tour a, a model vineyard. Uh, so a lot of people, even people who love Texas wine, don't know that the grapes are grown in the high plains. You mentioned that this article was the the idea of the the plaintiff's attorney. Was there any thought about holding off until after this was resolved, either by settlement or by going to court? No, because as journalists, we don't set our schedule by what, what what's going on in the legal world. If, if we did that, this story might not appear for years. We thought it was an important story to tell now because regardless of what happens in the lawsuit, dicamba is going to continue to be used until either the cotton growers voluntarily stop using it or the EPA revokes its registration. So I think this is a relevant story, and I think the response to the story shows that people are interested in the Texas wine industry. Uh, and this is part of my job as a journalist is to expose conflicts and problems that people were not previously aware of. Right. Well, I'm glad that people are talking about Texas wine, although this isn't maybe the story that I wish they would have heard first, but such is life. Um, I know that there are some growers in the High Plains, and you mentioned Paul Bonarigo that, that supported it, but didn't join the lawsuit. Did you attempt to talk to any grape growers that were not part of the lawsuit and did not support the claims of this group? I couldn't find any. Uh, my understanding is that it's a pretty close-knit industry. Everybody seems to know everybody else. And my impression was that there's pretty widespread, disagree widespread agreement that dicamba is a major problem. I was not able to find any Texas wine industry uh, individual who was willing to defend BASF and Bayer. Uh, the one thing I've heard about, as you've know, since you've been out to Lubbock, it is so windy there. And one of the ways that you're supposed to use the product safely is in a very low wind condition. And and you have to wonder, is there ever a day or a time when it's safe to use dicamba and have it not um, volatilize and, and drift? That's part of the problem. Yeah. I mean, for decades, dicamba has been known to volatilize, especially in windy, hot conditions. Well, guess what? The High Plains is windy and it's hot. So if farmers are following the label instructions, which have been tightened every year, uh, they should not be applying dicamba unless the wind is below a certain threshold. I think it's maybe 10 miles an hour or something. Uh, and there's a whole host of other restrictions. You can only apply it from a few hours after sunrise to a few hours before sunset. And then you can only apply it within 100 feet of the nearest field. So scientists have gone through this and determined that if cotton growers actually followed all of these label instructions to the letter, they would only be able to apply dicamba for a few dozen hours in the course of an entire growing season. That, that's how restrictive these label instructions are. So there's a lot of suspicion that the EPA is making these instructions so narrow and so stringent that it's almost impossible to follow them. 
I'm like you. I'm not an ed- agricultural expert, but I also noticed reference to there being other uh, chemicals that could potentially harm vineyards, that it's not all dicamba damage, perhaps. Is that, is well, that accurate? Sure. The row, row crop farmers have, have used herbicides for decades. Uh, for, for a long time, the most popular was Roundup, which uh, most consumers will be familiar with. It's, it's often used to kill weeds in, in you know, your, your front lawn. That's based on glyphosate, which is a different chemical. And in the early 1990s, Monsanto introduced the Roundup Ready system, which consisted of genetically modified s- cotton or soybean seeds, uh, which were, again, genetically modified to survive applications of this glyphosate-based Roundup. And those work great. Uh, glyphosate actually was not as harmful to neighboring crops. It was didn't have the same volatilization problem. And so that's what row crop farmers relied on. Upwards of 90% of them used Roundup. The problem is that weeds grew resistant to it. These super weeds emerged, uh, most notably the Palmer amaranth, which Roundup could not kill. So BASF and Monsanto, which is now owned by the German conglomerate Bayer, came up with a new version of Roundup, which includes dicamba. So it's actually a combination of glyphosate, Roundup, and dicamba. And that's what farmers are switching over to now because it is the most effective. Uh, it can kill these super weeds. The other thing you know, that I don't really examine in my story, but I heard a lot of speculation is about, is that just as weeds have grown resistance to Roundup, they are eventually going to grow resistant to dicamba and BASF and Bayer are going to have to find something else. But so far, uh, the dicamba-based herbicide has proved enormously popular. Were there any other avenues that your reporting took you in that didn't make it in the story that you think are particularly interesting or Sure. Well, I heard lots of rumors of conflict between cotton growers and grape growers. Uh, including rumors of death threats, physical threats, verbal altercations. I could not get anyone to go on the record about this. Uh, Andy Timmons, uh, who who farms about 200 acres of vineyards in the High Plains and owns co-owns Lost Straw Cellars, told me that one of his vineyard-owning friends received a death threat uh, from a cotton grower over this lawsuit. Uh, but this person would did not want to talk to me. Uh, there, there's a, you know, it's a, it's a tight knit community up there and this has caused a lot of division and a lot of people are hesitant to air their dirty laundry in public. But I definitely got the sense that there's a lot of tension. Uh, Andy Timmons told me that he and his fellow vineyard owners have become pariahs in their community because of this lawsuit. I have to admit that I'm surprised to hear you say that the story idea was from the attorneys because someone had suggested to me that that may indeed be the case, but I guess that's no secret. You know, stories come from all over the place. We, we, we get tips, we get leads from all kinds of places. And, you know, our job is to investigate the claims for ourselves and make our own determination. You know, this, the story did not rely and in fact, it doesn't even quote the attorneys for these lawyers. We relied on the testimony of the vineyard owners, those who are in the lawsuit, and 
you know, at least one, you know, Paul Bonariga, who isn't in the lawsuit, weed scientists like Kevin Bradley at the University of Missouri. Uh, and, you know, we tried to get the other side. We, we asked BASF and Bayer to provide somebody for an interview. They declined to make anyone available. We asked the Texas Department of Agriculture for an interview. They declined an interview. So as a journalist, when one side will talk to you and the other side will not talk to you, you're left to simply put that in front of the reader and let them make their own conclusions. Well, at 4,500 words-ish, it's a really fascinating um, account of what's going on in the High Plains. Where should people um, find this story if they haven't already read it? It's at texasmonthly.com. And you can also search for Texas Monthly Wine Industry, and it should come up. It's also under my byline page. If you search for Texas Monthly Michael Hardy, it's, it's under the list of stories that I've written. Is there any chance that it's going to appear in print? It doesn't appear so at the moment. And do you have something else coming on Texas Wine that we should um, keep our eyes out for? Not at the moment, but I'm always open to tips. If anyone would like to reach out, uh, I hope you would put my contact information on your podcast page. I, I have my own website. You can go and, and submit a tip to me. Excellent. I, I will add one final thing. I, as a result of this story, I got to drink a lot of great Texas wine. And uh, despite the potential, uh, you know, uh, damage to the industry caused by dicamba, I, I still find it delicious and I uh, buy it every chance I get. If you'd like to reach out to Michael with feedback on the story, you can email him at kerr, K-E-R-R, dot hardy at gmail.com. I'll put that information in the show notes. I'll be back in two weeks with a much more lighthearted podcast episode featuring an interview with some of your favorites from Hack Winery. Cheers, y'all.